0: The following audio is from Life Point Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. And so, there's those, those in the church, maybe some of you here today, uh, and I know for me on several occasions, there's times where uh, I come to faith and I know that I'm saved and I know that I'm a believer and, and sealed as a child of God. Uh, but this book was written so that I would be assured reassured that what God has started in me will see it to completion, that what God is doing in me, I will have assurance. And that's what he says in chapter 5. He says, I write these things to you so that you may know, that you will know that you have eternal life. And so that's the reason why it was written. And so all through the book of 1 John, there's this theme. There's these themes. There's this thread. There's this. Um, there's this continuation of what First John says. What it means to know or have assurance, and he says it's basically broken down in two different ways. He says the first one is is Christ. Where you stand with Christ. What you believe about Christ. What you know to be true about Jesus. And he says the first, the first understanding of, that comes from assurance is who, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you know Jesus to be? How do you know what Jesus has done? And so there is a belief in Jesus, which is the first thing that we'll see over and over again throughout the first John. But the second one is that if you believe in the son, you'll keep his commandments. That's the second kind of litmus test. That's the second benchmark. It says, okay, okay, the first one is believing on Jesus. And the second one Is keeping his commandments, namely, love. That's the commandment. And so we see this all throughout, and um, we know that people, maybe you're here today, sometimes don't have or walk in the assurance that we should have. I believe it's God's will for us to walk as children of God in assurance that we are genuinely children of God. Or or else, how would we exalt a God, always wondering, I don't know if he loves me, I don't know if I'm safe, I don't know if I'm his child, right? God doesn't want us to walk in that. uh, but the Bible says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so there is a, a balance within us that begins to show forth that says, I want assurance. God wants me to have insurance, so how can I be assured that truly I've been born of God? This is not a new thing, by the way. It's a thing that's been happening ever ever since the beginning, to have assurance. Remember in Matthew 7, one of the most horrifying texts in the Bible? Matthew 7, where uh, Jesus is there and he says, "Uh, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, uh, didn't we do these things in your name? And he'll say, "Uh, I don't know you. Right? You know that text where, where people will say, on that day, many will come to me and tell me, Lord, Lord. And they'll say, no, no, didn't we, didn't we, um, uh, didn't we, didn't we, uh, cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we do these things in your name? He says, yeah, but I don't know you. And so this assurance deal, this wondering if we're truly saved has been an issue from the beginning. Actually, in John chapter eight, uh, there's these religious leaders. Uh, they, they lead uh, the, the Jews, they lead the church, they're the Pharisees, they come, and Jesus actually calls them sons of Satan. It's John 8, 44. And so these guys are thinking, man, we've done everything right. And he says, actually, no, you're, 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 not, you're not my children, you're not of my sheep, you're actually not of my fold. And so, gosh, is it possible to have assurance I mean, I don't know. Is there, an, is there an outward display of assurance? Is there, is there a way to tell if someone's actual born-again Christian? Because we live in an age where really anyone just says, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, that's me, boom. And on that day, Jesus is going to be like, I don't know you. And so is there an outward display? Is there outward affirmation? Is there something that we can cling to for assurance? Because if there is, I'd like to know what that is. I mean, maybe in the Old Testament for the Hebrews, uh, it it was circumcision. So you could lift up the tunic and be like, yep, Hebrew. Yep, Hebrew. I mean, we don't do that. Don't get scared. Your first time here. That'd be awkward, would it not? Put that down. I mean, there was an outward display, but, but Deuteronomy 36, it says that the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. How do we know if our hearts have been cleansed? And, and, and in, in Colossians 2, it says it's by faith that a new circumcision of our heart begins to take place. So it's not just an outward circumcision, but it's an inward heart thing. And so is there a mark of a Christ one? Is there a display of a Christian I mean, is it skinny jeans and toms? That guy must be saved. I mean, he goes to VBs and drinks coffee. <laughs> must, must, must be a Christian. That's a local joke, by the way. Uh, what, what's the mark? Is it, is it uh, black and pink stickers on our windows of our cars? Is that the mark? That guy must be saved, man. He's got the sticker. Is it is it the is it the fish on the bumper? I mean, what what is the mark? Is it church attendance? Is it the guys who carry the big Bibles? Is that, is that what it means? And so, if we don't really know what it means, basically we just come to church and we do some religious activities and we just do what everybody else does, and we just have this false sense of assurance, and we're really not saved, which is which is the enemy's scheme is being like, yes! They think they know Jesus and they don't. They just know religion. And so It's not good behavior. It's not Bible memorization. It's not missions trips. But what happens when the Spirit actually removes this heart of stone and I come to faith in Jesus and I get a new heart? Jesus, Paul, John, James, and Peter and all the writers of the New Testament agree that it is bearing fruit, is the mark of a genuine believer. Look in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This is red letter in my Bible. I don't know if you have red letter on your app that you're scrolling through, uh, but red letter just simply means that Jesus is talking here. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. I am the one. I'm the root. I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here, here's the deal. He says, I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser. He he works the garden. He shapes the vine. He works the vine so that it would bear fruit. And if you're, uh, if you're a vine that doesn't bear fruit, that's not attached to Jesus, you're actually going to be in trouble in the end. Uh, verse 3, give me that first word. Already which means it's already, which means it's happened already. Watch this, watch this. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, let me clarify any confusion that this might mean that you're saved if you bear fruit. It says that you are already clean, and because you are clean, you will bear fruit. It's not saying, go and produce some fruit, and then you'll be saved. It says, I'm the vine. If you're attached to the vine, you will bear fruit. And listen, you're already clean. Not because of something you produced, not because of something you did, not because of something you worked out on your own. You're already clean because I made you clean. That's what it says, already. Now look at what it says. Abide in me, because you're already clean because you're already saved because you're already born again, because of the word that I spoke to you, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. That clarifies it, doesn't it? That you can't bear fruit outside of Jesus Christ, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. I am the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they're burned. So, so here's the deal. When you are attached to the vine and Jesus is the vine, you will begin to bear fruit. Because you're already clean, you will begin to produce clean fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do this without me. Which means you can do some religious activities, and you can carry a really fat Bible, and you can put the sticker on your car, but until you are attached to the vine, you actually can do nothing. You can't bear fruit. That's what he says. So the question is, what is Bearing fruit. Isn't that a good question? Don't we want to know what that means? I mean, that's, that's the question we're after. How do we know if we're bearing fruit? Well, look in verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. And so, give me that word. Prove. okay. Assurance comes. You have proof. You have assurance. You have proof that you bear fruit. So to prove that you are my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that your joy, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Verse twelve. This is the commandment that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, and someone laid down his life for his friends. Verse sixteen. He says, "I didn't. I. I uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and you, and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. What is the fruit that you would?" Love one another. That your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. We're asking the same question that Jesus answered What does it mean to be a Christ one? How do you know you're attached to the vine? How do you know that you're bearing fruit? How do you know you're saved? It's because you begin to love the Father. Because he has laid down his life for you. And that overflows into a love for one another. That's what it's going to say in 1 John. That the fruit of the spirit of a child of God is loving one another. Look in 1 John now. Let's go. 1 John chapter 3 is where we are. 1 John chapter 3. We'll start in... um, Let's start in verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Isn't that what we want to know? Okay, when we go uh, on that day, will he say, uh, I don't know you, or will he say, you're my son? Okay, This this is how it works. By this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not, Love his brother. Verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. No, he's not telling us anything new here, guys. He's saying, Remember in John 15, where Jesus said, This is the commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. Remember in Leviticus 19, that you are to love one another. Remember in Deuteronomy, over and over and over again, where it says you should love one another. This is not a new deal. This is the same deal that's marked Christians forever. He says, this is not a new message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, John did something kind of scary here, but it's true. He takes every person on the planet and basically separates them up into two families. Every person, every person, everyone living and breathing with a pulse, with heartbeat—you can check yours now, make sure that's you. Okay. He basically takes every person and separates them up into two families. He says, either you're of God or you're of the devil. There's no third category; it's one or two. He says, either you're of God or you're of the, de- of the devil, and one of these two are your father. So, how do you know which one's your dad? Well, it's simple. You look like your dad. It's simple. It's not by the sticker. It's not by the weight of the Bible that you carry. You, you begin to look like your dad. If we brought uh, uh, the guys up here on stage and lined them all up, and we brought my son up and stood him in the middle, and you would say, okay, how, which one's your dad? What's the one I look like? Well, obviously, it's not Doug, because he doesn't look nothing like me. It's 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 how do you know who is your father? You you look like your dad. It's that simple. Because you have the seed of God in you. You have the spirit of God in you. That's verse 9 of first of of chapter 3. You have the spirit in you. You look like your dad. And although God is perfect and God is righteous, we are not perfect. So this is not a call to perfection. This is not a call to be perfect as God is perfect, but we we don't continue to practice in our sin. We continue to practice love. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy sin. That's 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 and verse 8. And so if Jesus is in your life, he begins to destroy the works of sin in your life, and he begins to destroy the works of devil in your life, and you begin to look like your father who is love. How do you know who your dad is? You look like your dad. As a child of God grows more and more, you begin to look more and more and more like your dad. dead. You don't become more and more righteous. Let me clarify that. Because you're already righteous. You're already clean. And because you're already clean, you begin to walk with your dead. Listen, you're already righteous by the blood of Jesus on the cross. There's not a single action. There's not a, thing, a single thing you can think. There's not a th- single thing you can do. There's not a religious action you can do in your life that would make you more righteous. As a child of God, you are completely righteous because only the righteous one can make one righteous. You tracking with that? You're completely clean. And because you're completely clean, you begin to look clean. So you begin to look like your dad. According to Jesus and here in John, the mark of a child of God has been the same from the beginning and it's a love for God and love for one another. Again, okay, he breaks them down into two camps, two streams, two families. He says one family is the family of God, one family is the family of the devil. And John begins to give examples of what this looks like. You see, in God's family, you begin to look a little bit like Christ and in the devil's family, you get a little look like Cain. That's what he says. Let's read it. He said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. So he says there's two camps. There's one of God, one of the devil, and one, our example, is Christ, and the other one is Cain, and Christ displays the greatest love, the self-sacrificial love, the one who lays down his life for his friends, and Cain is the one who actually takes life and robs life for his own good. He starts with Cain, and Cain is a murderer of his brother. Why? Because his deeds were evil. How many of you know the story of Cain? What's that all about? That sounds pretty wicked. Yeah, kind of is. So uh, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, knew her, all right? And when they knew each other, they had some children. You're, you're tracking now. And so uh, he knew his wife Eve, and they had uh, Cain and, and Abel, and, and Abel was the keeper of the sheep, and A- Cain was the worker of the ground. And so hear me, they had the same parents in the same home and the same upbringing And they were called both as the same to offer a sacrifice to God. Both brought sacrifice to worship God. Now hear me, because Cain was never presented as an unbeliever. Because some of you are thinking, okay, uh, Cain must have been an atheist. Cain must have been an unbeliever. Cain must have not been in the pews. Cain was seen as a worshiper of God. He came up in the same family. I'm sure he heard the stories. I mean, his parents walked with God in the cool of the day, right? I'm sure that they heard from his parents, like, this is what God does. We saw the creation. Remember the time that God gave the job to your daddy to name all the animals? Wasn't that awesome? Cain knew. Cain was a religious Guy, both Cain and Abel, knew the one true God. They knew the creator God. They knew who God was. And they were both painted as a worshiper of God. Let me just tell you a side note here. Some of the greatest haters of those who are truly gods are those who are very religious. Okay? So that does not mark a child of God. It wasn't an atheist who murdered Jesus. It wasn't uh, the unreligious that murdered Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, the people who didn't worship the one true God that murdered Jesus and cried out, crucify him. It was the crowd of the religious people. It was actually the religious leaders that led that crucifixion. And so, and so here, Cain was a very religious man, and both Cain and Abel were called to bring a sacrifice or an offering to God to go and worship God. I believe that at some level, God gave them the same sacrifice, which is a living sacrifice, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, and so Abel brought the best sacrifice he had. He brought the first that he had. He brought uh, what he knew to be the most honorable gift to worship God. Which is a symbol, I trust you, God. Which is a symbol of, I'm bringing my first to God. I'm bringing my best to God. I know, I don't know if there's going to be more. I don't know if you're going to give me more than this. But I'm bringing my best to you. I'm bringing my, my greatest to you. I'm bringing my first to you because I trust you and I'm yours. And Cain, when he brought a sacrifice, he just basically went through the motions. He reluctantly observed, okay, I'm supposed to bring worship. I don't know. Let's see what I'll do. I'll grab some fruit here. I'll bring some offering. Rather than the sacrifice that God intended, rather than the sacrifice that God wanted, he brought the fruit of his land, which he himself produced. you got to see that. So for him, he tried to make a relationship with God based on what he accomplished. He tried to build his relationship with God based on what he produced, which, by the way, never gets you to God. And so Cain was worshiping God from a wicked heart. He was trying to get to God through his own works. And God said, listen, I'm not interested in your offering if you don't trust me. I'm not interested in this, in this stuff that you're bringing to my altar if you don't really trust me. Now, here's a side. note: some of us, we give not because we trust God, but because we, we know we ought to. Some of you give begrudgingly. And you don't give your first fruits, you just give whatever you think you can produce. And so we don't give to God out of a joyful, cheerful heart. We don't give out of trust. We give out of just trying to appease God. And we bring to Him things that we have produced. And when you hear things like, you should tithe, you should give 10% of all that you have to God, we're like, are you kidding me? I don't produce that much. I haven't grown that much. I don't have enough in my basket. Rather than giving out of the fact that God gives everything, we come to him with the things that we think that we've produced. And so so many people just give out of what they produce and God's like, "I'm not about what you produce, but rather do you trust me with what I've been given?" Abel gives. I don't know if I'm going to get more than this. I don't know if I'm going to have enough. I don't know if this is going to be uh, if this is going to lead to my judgmental. But I trust God, and I'm and I'm giving it to Him. Cain, there was no gratitude. It was just dead ritual. Hebrew tells us that he was a man with no faith, and God says, "Okay, you're not grateful. I don't want it." And so with Cain, there's no trust in God. There's no gratitude for God. Not with his actions. He says, I don't need God. I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to go for mine. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get ahead for me. I'm going to work for me. I'm going to strive for me. I'm going to labor for me. I'm going to do what's best for me, even if it costs you your life. I'm going to do whatever I can to get ahead. And we live in an age where I'm out to get mine. I'm going to take care of mine. I'm going to go for me first. And Cain has this remorse toward his brother. He has resentment. It leads to hate. Hate leads to frustration. He's angry with God. He's angry with Cain. We know it leads to the dark side. and leads to death. And so everyone is in two families, two camps. There's a stream that flows from God, and there's a stream that flows from the devil. One reflects Christ. The other reflects Cain. And so the fruit of Cain is, I don't trust God. I don't have gratitude toward God. I have a hardness of heart toward God. I have a hardness of heart toward people, and it leads to hate. That's kind of severe, Eric. Matthew 5, 21, let me read you what Jesus said. Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who has anger with his brother will be liable to judgment. Cain is extreme. I'm gonna go for mine. I'm gonna get mine. I'm gonna do my thing. I'm gonna build my kingdom. I'm gonna build my comfort. This is about me. And Cain is willing to take everything from you even if it means your life, no matter what. John 10.10. What does it say? You know? It says, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come so that you may have life. And life... To the full. Now, how much of your words, how much of your actions, how much of your time reflect that you are a child of the giver of life? Do you steal? Do you kill? Do you destroy? Do you build yours? Do you take for me? This is all about me. If I have maybe some left over, I may be able to bless you, but really, I'm about me. Jesus says, I've come to give. Life Now, here's here's the other camp. So you've got the camp of of the devil and you've got the camp of Cain, but there's another camp. There's another family whose God is the Father and Christ is the example. And some of you right now are like, okay, Eric, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. All right, you're going to say uh, that if you live in this camp, you're wicked and you're evil and you hate and you're not a good boy or not a good girl and, and these are the bad guys that kill and murder and and all the Christians are the children of God who God just looks over and loves and says, oh, you're so pretty, you're so wonderful. I love the way you look. I love the way you act. You are so great. And the spirit sprinkled dust of blessings on my little children, I love you. So you're going you're gonna to paint these two camps, and one's really wicked and evil, and one's really beautiful and loving. But listen to me. We're all over here. We're all Cain. We all live lives focused on ourselves. That's why we need a Savior, guys. Cain, if it's true that I'm Cain, I'm standing there in the field just Killed my brother. I need a savior. Listen, there's two camps. We're all like Cain. Flip over to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you, so uh, uh, that's you, okay? You can say me, and I, you, were, give me that word. Dead, you were dead. You were dead, you were dead, you were dead. And listen to me, there's nothing that dead men can do. Nothing. Can a dead guy somehow produce fruit? No, you're dead. You're dead. How am I dead? I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. We were all dead, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following that stream of the devil, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has worked uh, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, give me that word, all, we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh. In the passions of my own kingdom, in the passions of my own comfort, in the passions of myself, we all once lived carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So it's not only what we do, it's also what we think. Are we not more in trouble now? So it's not just this outward working with my hands. It's now your thoughts are wicked. So even though you didn't call your brother into the field and slice him, you actually are thinking about it. Yeah, we admit that. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Greatest word in the Bible right here, verse four, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy, mercy is not receiving a punishment that you deserve. And so we deserve wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by our thoughts and by our actions dead in our trespasses and we deserve wrath. But God being rich in mercy, not giving us a punishment we do, why would he do that? Why would he show mercy? Because of the great, 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 great love with which he loved us even when we were what? Dead. Even when we were not bearing fruit, not attached to the vine, not loving our brothers, not loving God when we were dead. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Together with Christ, it is by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place. He brought us into his home. He brought us as his child. He brought us into his kingdom in the heavenly places in Christ. Jesus is not on our own good works, So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches and his great kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And just in case you think that that's something that you muster up, he finishes it like this. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So right when you think that you mustered some strength to walk the aisle, right when you think you mustered some strength to raise a hand, right when you think you mustered something in you to respond, listen, that was the gift of God also, that faith to believe is not of your own doing. It's actually a gift. Because it's something, if it's something we can muster, if it's something that we can perform, if it's something that we can do, then we never have assurance. If it's something that I can create, then maybe if I can create it, maybe I can lose it. And if if you think it's something that I can talk you into, then someone else is going to talk you out of it. And you're never assured. This is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Listen to what it says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, formed in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. I believe that that it means that we're his poetry. That workmanship, it's the, it's the, it's the word poetry. We are his, his music. We are his symphony. We are his artwork. We are his poetry so that we could walk in love. As a Christian... In this camp, it's one who God interrupted their hearts with grace. That's how we know. You know you're born of God when God interrupts your heart with grace. While we were a sinner, while we were on the road to destruction, God gets to your heart. Now listen to me, and you never get over it. You never get over it. Are you telling me that while I was dead, while I was in my sins, while I was in my trespasses, that I was, I was by nature deserving wrath like the rest of my kind and God brought me out of the grave and brought me to life? Listen, you don't get over that. If you realize you're dead and Jesus brought you alive, that's something that overflows into your entire life. You don't get over that. That's real. That's real. <laughs> And so, salvation is by grace through faith, and it brings new life. And it doesn't just simply uh, uh, do something in you, it does something through you. Listen, it's not something that you create. Salvation is not something we do by works, it's not something we're saved by effort, it's not something we're saved by good behavior, it's only by Christ. Salvation from passing death to life is not something you do, it's only something you respond to. I'm alive! I was dead. I was dead. I was wallowing in my blood, like it says in Ezekiel 16. I was lame there. And God said, uh-huh, come here. Come here, I got you. It's something you respond to. It's not something we get over, but it does overflow under our brother. Look in First John chapter 3, verse 14. So go back to our text. Passing from death to life reflects the presence of life. Passing from death to life. Passing from death to life. Those who've received grace reflect grace. Those who've received love reflect love. Look in verse 14. We know. Okay, that's the assurance thing, all right? That's what we're looking for. How do we know? How do we know we're born again? How do we know we're a child of God? By this, we know. We know that we have Give me that word. Past. Now, this is not a trick question here. Is that present? Is that future? Or is that past tense? Past. Yeah, the word is past. We know that we have past. We've (laughs) already passed. You're on that. We know that this is actually already in the past happened. It's not something we're we're trying to create. It's something that's already happened. We have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. That's the sticker. You know... How you know that you've been passed to life. You know how you know if you've received grace. You know how you know. You know that you've passed from death to life because you love, because Christ loved you. That's how you know. We've passed. We know that he's come to us because we love our brothers. Now look in verse 16. I'll wrap it up here. By this, we know love. That he, who's the he there? Come on, you can say that here. Jesus, we know That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for a brother. So Jesus sees us when we're dead in our trespasses and sin, when we are at our worst, when we are lonely, when we are helpless, we were dead in our sins. Jesus came to us when we were poor, he brought us. When we were dead, he brought us. When we were downcast, he brought us. When we were helpless, he brought us to himself. That's love. When we had hard hearts toward God, when we had hard hearts toward others, it is by this sacrifice we know love that he laid down his life for us. Jesus gave everything. You know, Cain, of the devil, he wants to take everything, and he wants to take everything for his life, for his good. Jesus says, I'm laying down my life for your good. It's actually not about me. It's about you enjoying everything the fullness of my Father. And that requires a sacrifice, and I'm willing to do that. And so it says, look at it with me, everyone, um, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Has, and you know, that no murderer has eternal life. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And some of you are saying, yeah, I would do that. I'd do that. I mean, we go out here on Highway K, I see my brother out there in the road, big truck coming, you don't see it, right? I'd run out there, I'd push him out of the way. I would do that. I would do it. Somebody comes in, right? I would take a bullet. I'd jump in front of, you know, I don't care. I would take my life. I love you so much that I would lay down my life for you. If I could go to the cross and so other people could be blessed, I would do that. We'd be quick to say that, huh? But This is where it gets really real. Because look at what it says in verse 17. Oh yeah, I'd, 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 I'd take that bullet. I take that cross. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, this cut me to the heart but he's talking about laying down your life for your brother as associated with your goods. Oh, I take a bullet, but you want me to sell something to give somebody a need? Woo! Oh, that's a different task. Because I'm building my kingdom here, and I'm not willing to sacrifice that. I mean lessen my savings? Mm, I'll push you out of the way of that truck, but you want me to get into my my kingdom? You want to get into my comfort? When I see someone in need, you you know, I'll help them. I'll take a bullet for them. You know, I'll help them across the road, but that not cut us? He says, you want to know what it looks like to lay down your life? You give. You give your stuff. You give your time. You give your money. Cain was all about getting his. And Jesus said, I'll forsake everything for you. He's not talking about taking a bullet. He's saying, if you see someone in need and you don't help them, you must not know how much God's helped you. I'm talking about stuff. Wait, wait, my stuff is my identity. Yeah, I'm talking about your identity. You lay that down for a brother. Oh, my, my stuff is my self-image. My stuff is my comfort. My, my stuff is my kingdom. Yeah, you lay that down when you see your brother in need. So listen, it's not just talk anymore, is it? You don't just talk about it. It's word and deed. You know what's amazing to me is Acts chapter 4, it says the, the Christians, it said there was no needy person among them. Dang. Acts 2, it says they sell their possessions and give to anyone who had need. That's radical living. How do you know a genuine believer? Because when you know grace, you give grace. When you know love, you give love. And when you see someone in need, you render heaven and you come down and say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. God did not just simply open the door. He brought us out of the grave, and he carried us home. One of the things that we do here as a church is we partake in communion. Jesus displays his great love for us. And he gives us this symbol. It says that on the night of, of his betrayal, He had his boys around him. And after he gave thanks, he said, this is my body that was broken for you. He says, when you take this and eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance that I came and forsaked everything so that my body could be broken for you. He took it and he broke it. In The same way he took the cup And he said, this is is my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We are Cain standing in the field, in the middle of committing the most angry, murderous offense, not only to God, but toward our brother. And Jesus said, my blood is sufficient for you. I will come, I will die for you so that you can be forgiven and you can enter into internal joy with me. He gave his life, he gave his blood. And he said, when you take this and you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. But we have a commission. The Bible says that before you partake in this table, that you search your hearts. Don't just come and simply observe some religious, some ritual But it says, examine your hearts. Are you thankful toward God and say, God, thank you for the cross? Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. I could not make it without you. It says, examine your hearts. As you examine your hearts and you remember Jesus, you come and you partake. Take the bread and you dip it in the cup as an act of worship and remembrance of what Jesus did. And so today, I'm going to ask you that when you're ready, when you're ready, you examine your hearts, you search where you're at, then we would make two lines down the middle here. You would come to the table, remember Christ and his sacrifice, take the communion, and then exit out through the sides, back around the back, and back to your seats. Okay, we're not going to come and dismiss Rose. You are free to come whenever you want. This is for believers the Bible says that this is for those who believe in Jesus. And so if you believe in Jesus today, may you remember his sacrifice for you. No greater love than this than he laid down his life for you. Let's pray. Jesus today. I thank you God that that we've received grace. Your word actually says that we receive grace upon grace upon grace, that, we, that grace goes deeper than any of our sin. And grace goes deeper than any acts that we've committed in a field, any acts of unrighteousness towards you, that your grace is sufficient. And today, as your people, we sit and we examine our hearts. And, and maybe, maybe today is a day of repentance where we say, God... I am about my kingdom. I'm honest with you. I am about my stuff. I I can't, I have a hard time forsaking my own comfort, my own kingdom. I need you, Jesus. Will you just confess that right where you're at? Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need you to wash me. I need you to reassure me that I am clean. Reassure my heart that you died. You paid the price for me. Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit, fall on us now and reveal to us that we are genuinely sons and daughters of God. And if we're not there, reveal that to us also. That we would turn to you and call upon your name and see that you still save. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. And we rejoice in that you love us So now, we love our brother. Let this be a reminder that we are called to look like our daddies. Thank you, Daddy. I love you, Jesus. Amen.